So today we're in session five, God hears. God listens to the honest and humble prayers of his followers. <coughs> we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 19, uh, verses 10 through 34. If you don't know it, this is uh, the story of Hezekiah. It is um, really cool. We'll talk about the story and its background in a minute. I want to, well, we're going to talk about background, but since I've been to Israel, the question that everybody asks, did you walk through Hezekiah's tunnel? Well, I'm going to answer that this morning with several pictures and a few videos. Um, the answer is no. We did not get to go through Hezekiah's tunnel because Hezekiah's tunnel's purpose is to move water from the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam, and it was... May and it was cold and the water was chest deep um, and yeah it was too cold to be walking in uh, so it was closed but there is a second tunnel and most people don't realize that so we'll talk about it in a minute first I want to look at a map this is a uh, I hope y'all can see that um, this is a different map than you have in any of your books this is the city of David that is the original Jerusalem. The Jebusites that built it and David conquered it, that's what it is. It's not that big. Um, it really isn't. And it starts at the top of a hill and runs right down the side along, this, along the uh, Kidron Valley. So it's a steep drop off into the Kidron Valley. I, didn't, I couldn't believe how, it, it, well, I expected it to be much bigger. Um, so this is the original city. David conquered it, and he built this section here, which is where he built his palace. It's in between the city and what would become the Temple Mount. It sits higher than the city, but lower than the temple. So when David talks about, I raised my eyes up to the Lord and all that, he means literally, because the Temple Mount, which is where they had the altar and all that. David didn't have a temple, but the altar, the place of worship, was the top of Mount Moriah, which would eventually become the Temple Mount. He would look up. That's where it was. That's where the priests were. That's where the, um, they, they kept all the stuff. The ark, when he finally got the ark back, that's where it went. It was set up there. Solomon is the one that built this green section, and that's the, that is the temple complex, that whole huge thing. You can see it's a whole lot bigger than the palace area, and it's probably the same square footage or close to it of the original city. I mean, they basically doubled the amount of space uh, for the temple complex, so it's huge. This out here is all part of the city now. Uh, it was back here, and Hezekiah um, enlarged the city of Jerusalem with all this, uh, well, I guess it's gold, gold space. You can see just how much building Hezekiah did. Now, the Gihon Spring is right here, all right? Down here is the Pool of Siloam. And the tunnel ran right down this edge. Now, the spring was actually outside the city. So you would go out the gates, 
and down to the spring. And the Jebusites, because of war, blocked it all off. And they dug a cistern by the spring that would fill, and you could go down these steps to the cistern. And there was a path, a tunnel that was on the outside where it used to run. All right, now I'm going to show you some pictures of this and give you some uh, interesting. Are there any questions before I leave the map? All right, so here we go. This is one of our group. Um, and this is uh, the tunnel down to the, where the spring is, where the cistern was that you would get the water from. And so you can see, it's, it, it, this, is, this is dug, this was built, this is what the Jebusites created so you could wind your way down to the uh, cistern to get water. And it's long. I mean, it, it, we're, we're talking a couple hundred feet down uh, to get it. You'll see uh, in a second. This is the cistern. Um, I'm looking down on it. So I'm standing on a set of stairs above looking down. They've got blue lights to make it look all cool and, and all that. But um, you're, you're looking down at the water. It, it's huge. Just another shot that was a little clearer. It's really hard. This is where the water, so this is the cistern. The water flows out of that into what would be Hezekiah's tunnel and channels it all the way down to the pool. This is a little video. This is us going down into it. You can see the old, um, old stonework and construction. They didn't have these nice metal stairs. This would have been just stone slope, not really very steppy. Uh, all the way back then. And women were the ones who brought water. So gals, the, you would have climbed down here with your jugs to get water and then have to climb back up into the city. Pretty dark too. We didn't have the lights. I, yeah, I don't know. I, we, we talked about that. Actually, if the, if the sound was on, you could, we, we were talking about that. And I'm like, probably torches. Somebody either carried them or they were in scones on the sides. But you can, uh, you can see this is pretty tight. Yeah. Um, so that's that's going down into it. That's we we had to climb all the way down. We had to climb back up. No, because we came out. We walked this tunnel that comes out down by the pool. Um, here's some, this is a clear, a little clear. Uh, okay, right here. That's the path that takes you to Hezekiah's tunnel, and it was closed. You could, like I said, if the sound was on, but there's so much talking in it. You could hear the roar of the water as it's as it's channeling down there. We couldn't do that. This is a side tunnel. This is the, the Canaanite tunnel that David climbed through in order to conquer the city. And it runs kind of parallel to the uh, to Hezekiah's tunnel. You can see how narrow this is. Now I'm going to show you a video in a second. Um, that's me walking through this. You can see how narrow it is, and you'll see. The gal in front of me, she's one of our groups, uh, was with our group. Uh, it's pretty tight for her. And she's a lot, she's about the size of my daughter Lydia, who usually comes to Sunday school. Um, and we walked through this tunnel. Now, the thing about this tunnel is, is that David and his mighty men climbed up through this tunnel secretly uh, in order to 
capture um, the city. That's how David <coughs> conquered Jerusalem. So think about it, all right? David's mighty men were, they, they were large. They're in armor. They've got spears, swords, shields, helmets, and they're going to walk this path. That's what the, that's that's the path with nobody in it. So to give you an idea, I had to turn sideways. I had to take my backpack off and turn sideways to slide through here. All right, here we go. We're gonna walk. This is about three minutes uh, video. It took us a little. It took us longer than that to walk the length of this. But you can see her just ahead of me, and she's having to turn sideways to get through some of these spots. David and his men climbing through here to conquer. He brought an army through here to take Jerusalem. Anybody get claustrophobic? Like, uh, no, nobody ever did it. Yeah, I wouldn't Me like too. that. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered that as we were going through, but nobody, nobody had any issue. It's very tall, so it doesn't feel like it's right on top of you, but it's very narrow. Yeah. yeah. Claustrophobia. <laughs> wow, that is hard to video. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I mean, I'm holding a camera in one hand, a backpack in the other, and trying to <laughs> <laughs> squeeze my way through there. Wow, look how narrow it gets. Yeah. And you had, they had jugs? Or yeah, they would carry. Now, this is how they, this is, was the path out of the city. Um, it was just a narrow passage. And that would have all been dug by hand, too. Uh, if it was dug at all, this I, well, yeah. This may have been just washout from the spring itself. I don't That's know. That's true. That'd be a blessing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Hezekiah's tunnel would have been much wider because it was meant to move water. Um, than this. This is very narrow. You have to imagine an army going through that and being quiet. Yes. <laughs> yes. How long is it? Huh? How long is it? Uh, I don't know the total length from where the stairs were to there. I mean, it's really hard to judge because you're in a narrow passage, so you can't see far enough and you can go, oh yeah, that's a hundred yards. Where we came out, was probably a quarter mile from where we went in. But I don't know how long the, the, the tunnel yeah. was. There's water. Yeah, there, there, there was, it was all slick through here. Oh, yeah, goodness. Oh. Yeah, we're coming to the end. You can see where we're coming out. <laughs> Exit signs. <laughs> nope, just keep walking. There are people behind me, people in front of me. Yeah. Um, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that, that <laughs> yeah totally. Totally underground. Um, we, we did a lot of stuff underground. I was amazed at how much, just how many sites we went to that had underground tunnels like this. Is um, it crawled in there? And they didn't have jackhammers or anything. It was, uh, like you know, you, yeah, they did it with chisels. And they, I mean, depending on the era, pre-David was the pre-iron era, so it would have been bronze. Um, they mostly would have had bronze chisels and stuff. After David was the iron, you know, they had the iron tools and stuff. But even at that, that's a lot of um, chiseling. You can see how far up we're going. But we, so we traversed uh, that. So 
How far underground is it? Uh, I don't know. We went down probably two, three stories wow. easily to get to the where the pool was. And then this goes down farther as you slope away from it. Um, the problem is, is they built on top of everything. So where the ground level is today and where it would have been um, then is was probably two or three stories from their ground level, whereas now uh, it's significant because the cities have been, like they built um, a plaza with coffee shops and stuff on top of the, um, the palace of David and didn't even know it. They've only recently discovered it and started excavating it, but it's under like multiple um, levels of construction, so. Anyway, everybody always, since we're doing Hezekiah, everybody wants to know, did you go in Hezekiah's tunnel? The water was too cold and too deep for us to walk through it, so we took the Canaanite tunnel, which most people don't know exists. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know which was worse, the narrowness of that or the coldness of the water. Uh, I can attest to the coldness of the water because I did uh, get the chance to swim in the Sea of Galilee, um, and that was very cold. Um, so, yeah, the so, Jordan River's cold too. Yeah, we were along that. I didn't get in the Jordan River, but it was cold, so I can only imagine how cold a fresh underground spring would have been um, with that. All right, so let's look at our background as we uh, do this. Any other questions before I uh, move on? Okay, so we're uh, going to be in chapter. 19, right? Yeah, chapter 19. So we're going to look at chapter 18. And the background is important because where we're going to pick up the story is a lot later in Hezekiah's rule. Um, and so we need some, we need some background uh, on this. So first of all, in chapter 18, Hezekiah come, becomes king of Judah. And he rules. And he's a pretty good king. He removes the high places. He actually has these torn down and destroyed. Second thing he does is he destroys the staff of Moses. Remember the staff? Um, it was had the serpent on it. You looked at it and you were healed. Well, as is the tendency of human nature, they turned it into an idol and worshipped it. Uh, because it had power rather than God who gave it power, you know. So they worshipped it. So Hezekiah destroyed it. So if anybody's wanting to know what happened to that staff, it was destroyed by Hezekiah. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, so anybody claiming they found it or whatever, yeah, you're crazy. Um, no such luck. It's in that warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, all the pieces, right? Somebody found all the pieces. See, that was a wood staff that probably burned. Um, the king of Assyria begins to make a series of serious boasts um, in chapter 18. And that, I want to look at those because we need to understand that because what's going to come next that's our lesson today uh, comes from this. So the king of Syria making boasts. We want to look at 2 Kings chapter 18 verses 14 through 16. And Hezekiah king of Judah sent to the king of Assyria at Lechem saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So he had come, and this is when he came to take in the northern kingdom, Israel. He'd been in that country. 
His armies were in the area, and, um, well, Hezekiah kind of stood up to him a little bit and uh, realized that he wasn't going to win. So he says, I'll, whatever you impose, I'll, I'll, I'll do. And the king of Assyria required Hezekiah, king of Judah, to pay 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So that beautiful temple that Solomon had built with all that wealth and that they repaired, um, we saw last week, he needed money. So they went and they scraped the gold off of it. So you want to know what happened to all that stuff from the temple? Well, here it is. Hezekiah needs it to pay the bill to it. Now, 300 talents is about $54 million in gold based on the troy ounce and current pricing. So today, that would be about $54 million bucks. And he had to come up with it. Remember, Israel's just a poor agrarian society. They're farmers. They're shepherds. They produce agricultural products and sell them. They're not a major industry nation or anything like that. So this is, this is serious hardship for Hezekiah and the people. And they pay it up. A little while longer, we get to 2 Kings 18, 19 through 36. And Hezekiah doesn't have enough money. So he can't pay the, the tax or whatever on it. So we get to verse 19. And Rabbishakin said to them, this is, the, this is an administrator from Assyria, said to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, oh, what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, come now and make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses. If you are able on your part to set riders on them, how then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? When you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Echolim, the son of Hilkah, and Shinabah, and Joah said to Rabbishan, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, within the hearing of the people who are on the walls. So all the soldiers are on the walls of Jerusalem. And this guy is making all these brags and boasts and all that. 
to Hezekiah's administrators, and they said, don't, don't speak to us in Hebrew. Speak to us in Aramaic so they won't know what you're saying. But th this guy, th this is psychological warfare right here. He knew he's trying to get them to basically throw the king out and uh, accept Assyria. Uh, so, verse 27. But Rabbishakin said to them, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you, to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then Rabbishakin stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. And do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath, Arphad? Where are the gods of Sephonim, Hena, Ivan? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. So that's the background setting up this uh, story. It's, um... <laughs> I, I am the emissary. <laughs> I am the emissary. Yeah, you've seen 300. Uh... They weren't the first ones to stand. Here's Hezekiah's guys. Not a word. They said nothing. The boast, the brag, the, oh my word, total blaspheme. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Your God is nothing. I will take this city. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. He actually went so far to say that your God told me to come and do this. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, the world didn't understand who God was. Uh, they had no, no belief in him, no faith in him. And what we're going to see is what Hezekiah does with this. Because let's face it, this is stressful. You saw that map. In Jerusalem, if you've ever actually looked at overhead pictures, uh, Jerusalem is surrounded by deep valleys. And the city sits way up high on top. It would not be an easy assault. Now, we just saw what David went through to take the city um, at that, you know, that time, which meant they know of that cavern. Uh, the Kidron Valley is deep. I mean, if you start on the Mount of Olives at the top, you've got to go hundreds of feet, if not a thousand feet down, before you've got to come back up the other side. 
Now, this is ancient warfare. There, there's no, they don't have artillery. Uh, at this point, I don't believe they've invented trebuchets or catapults. Uh, so they can't bombard the city. So when you get to the other side, what are you going to face? Arrows and stuff coming down. On yeah, you. walls with guys throwing stuff down at you. Now, the normal way of warfare would be to fill that valley in with debris and basically bridge it. So you could just run across right up to the wall. They would just pile it up, make a nice gentle sloping ramp so soldiers can run up and breast the walls and get in and throw open the gates. That's how you did this. But let's face it, filling that in takes a long time. And you're under constant bow shot and everything else. All right, so that's where we're going. That's our background. Um, so now let's jump into our lesson and see what Hezekiah does. So 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 10 through 13. Somebody go ahead and read that. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Shepharim, the king of Hena, or the king of Iva? you got to love that. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. You have just called God, Yahweh, king of the universe, creator of all that is. A liar, a deceiver. You put him on the same plane as Lucifer. Uh, I don't think he's going to be very happy, uh, to say the least. The, the, these guys were brutal. And this is all being done in front of all the people. Now remember, Hezekiah came after a very evil king. So they hadn't been worshiping God in the first place. Um... So I don't know how strong their faith is, but they know. They have a history. They know what happened in Egypt to Pharaoh, who blasphemed God. It didn't turn out so well for him. All right, so this is the taunt. That's what he's doing. The, this guy who's from the king of Assyria is taunting Israel. But he's not just taunting the king. See, that's his mistake. He thinks he's taunting the king and the people, but really he is taunting God. And let's face it, when you are the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-being God who's chosen this particular place and these particular people, you're making a very bad enemy. He's talking to them about to stop trusting God. Uh, that, that's, that just smacks me of the idea of, you know, making little children trip and you should, you know, if you, if you cause one of them to fall and stumble, put a millstone around your neck and throw you in the sea. That's what this guy's trying to do. I foresee millstones for him. 
<laughs> and then Sennacherib, he's the king of Assyria. He is supposedly superior to all kings. <laughs> it's a boast. Maybe he is. I mean, Assyria was the dominant power um, of the day. So Sennacherib may have been king superior to all kings. But then they take it a step further. Because remember, in the ancient world, to be the king was to be God. They believed in king, God kings. And so Sennacherib is superior to all gods. At least in their mind, because he won the battles. Obviously, these other gods can't stop him. Because they believed in the local gods. They did not believe in a universal god. Um, now, we have temple records and stuff. And there was a, a hierarchy of gods that they believed that there was somewhere way out there somewhere was some you know, progenitor God that started the whole thing. But he wasn't worshipped. He wasn't part of the canon. It's the gods that were over the area that you lived that you would appease so that your crops would grow and so that your herds would increase and so that your children would be born normal instead of with defects and stuff. And so the uh, these gods were local. Some of them were war gods and they often were crushed by other war gods. And so Sennacherib is claiming superiority to all gods, and they saw Israel, or Judah, they saw that god as being just that, another, another war god, another god of this area, of this nation, and easily crushed. They didn't understand who he was. And then to top it off, uh, their military power is all that mattered. In the ancient world, that's what mattered. When it came to nations, trade and economics weren't a thing yet. Um, it was all about military power. How many horsemen you had, how many chariots you had, how many infantrymen you had. That's what mattered. That was the power of your nation. This is why God commanded that Israel not count the people. It was forbidden. If we go back and look at David, he counted his, mil mighty, his military men and it started a plague and thousands were wiped out. Uh, and David had to appease the Lord. He had, to, he had to worship. He had to offer sacrifice for the plague to stop because he counted the people. Because God did not want them to put their faith in numbers. If we remember the story of Gideon, God kept telling him he had too many. Whittle it down. Nope, still too many. Whittle it down. He's like, I ain't got enough to do anything. Nope, that's the right amount. Because where was their faith supposed to be? In God. God was their protector, not the might of their own arms, not the number of things. That's why he said, hey, look, I'll spot you 2,000 horses. Can you find enough people to even put on them? Yeah, that, that, that was a joke. I'll give you 2,000. Just take them off the picket. Can you get riders? And then we'll, then we'll have a battle and we'll see who wins. He's mocking him. So this whole taunt. Now, the problem is here. We, I love the story, and it's a picture of us today, though. We still have similar views, don't we? Tuesday, Super Tuesday is coming, and we're going to sit and watch these elections, and we're going to be concerned and because we view power, position, and money as being the controlling factors in our world. And so we look at who's got the bigger war chest, as we call them. For campaigning. 
Yeah, it's impressive. They can be impressive. It, how many people you've got going door to door and all that? How, what, what kind of rhetoric do you have? Do you, can you whip the people up into a crop and all that? We view that as being powerful and all that. Guess what? It, it's no different than this. They viewed it as only military power. We've spread it out now. We look at all these other factors and we become disheartened. Our guy doesn't have as much. Our guy doesn't do as much. He's not as well spoken. He's not this. He's not that. And we look at the things of the world and we grow despondent. despondent. That's a good word. Despondent. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know. I'm standing on the wall looking out at this array of an army. And this is not, it's just one, <coughs> it's one company. It's not even all of Sennacherib's army. This, this is an ambassador. He's come to bring this message and he's got troops with him. But all he's got to do is send a rider and he can bring the whole army down here. And uh, it's pretty impressive. And I'm listening to the, all of this uh, that we just read. You would be despondent. But it is interesting that nobody said anything. They all obeyed Hezekiah. Are you with me? All right. So now let's see what Hezekiah. Any questions? All right. Let's look at what Hezekiah does. 2 Kings 19, 14 through 19. Somebody go ahead and read that. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. All right, so he takes the letter and he goes up. Now remember our map. You had to go up. And that was, that was I found very interesting when I stood there in the city of David where the palace was. And it's not, the, it is a temple mount now. It's the Dome of the Rock. And I mean, it, you look up and it is, it, it's not like just look up. It's not like a little hill. I mean, it's look up. It's there. So he went up the hill. It's a climb. Uh, we climbed from the lower part of the of the original old city and took the Herodian road all the way up to the top of the Dome of the Rock. And that's a hike. He climbs up and goes to God with this letter. And he takes it to the Lord. Not like the first time he dealt with, Hezekiah, or with um, Assyria. The first time he did what? He gave him, gave him, paid yeah. tribute. Yeah, he said, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want. I'll pay you off. It didn't last. All that money, all that gold, the stripping of the doors of the temple, all of that. And yeah, now Hezekiah's back and taunting him and making fun of his God. So he goes up to see God. And he prays this prayer. Hezekiah 
turns to God, which is what we need to be doing. I know November's coming. Are you praying? Or are you worrying? Are you looking at how big that war chest is? Are you looking at how well he looks on TV in his commercials? Are you looking at how well he sounds in the debates? Or are you turning to God? Where's your faith? Is it in them? Or is it in God? Remember, nobody rules whom God doesn't put on the throne. Nobody. That includes our current president. That includes the current, whatever he is, premier over there in Russia. They are there because God put them there. Nobody rules without his say-so. Are we praying? Are we looking at it? He prays by acknowledging who God is. It isn't a list of requests, is it? I think all too often we think of prayer as just telling God what we want. We, we treat him as that galactic vending machine. Uh, no, we acknowledge who God is. Because when it gets our minds in the proper thinking, when we tell God who he is, he knows who he is, but it helps us focus as we talk to him that this is the king of the universe and what a privilege it is to be able to speak to him anywhere, anytime over anything and he will listen acknowledges who he is and then finally he asks him not for Hezekiah's sake but to glorify himself God glorify yourself by saving us it isn't for our sake it's to glorify you we exist to glorify God. Isn't that what, why people are here? If we are to glorify God, sometimes he saves us to glorify himself, not because we're lovable. He saves us because it's, it glorifies him in some manner. We don't understand. Always, sometimes, our, our fall, and he doesn't save us, glorifies him. Hence, martyrdom. Those that have their lives taken. And so Hezekiah prays. He turns to God even though this army's at the doorsteps and it is boastful, but it's mostly true that they had destroyed all these nations. Comment or question? I can't help but think how God is so grieved over how stupid we are. <laughs> yes! sitting at home, 
you, you know, you got one that probably lost in your car somewhere. We have the written word. They had to memorize it. Most of this was remembered through world because they didn't have scrolls with them. Uh, I, I don't know if I've told you, but I, I took an archaeology class and my professor brought a 400-year-old scroll of just the Torah. It was this big around and like that long. Uh, not quite pocket size. I mean, it's like the length of my leg, you know. And you would, I, and it's, it was like a hundred and some odd yards long. So think of football field plus if you rolled it all the way out at once. And it's it, it's a scroll, so it's made out of um, sheepskin that's been scraped thin. It's heavy. You ever held leather? Leather's. I got a full leather jacket that's angle length, and it, it, it's like almost fifty pounds. I can't imagine what this would have been. So you didn't carry it, so you knew. They knew, they were taught, they would memorize. And yet they still didn't understand, as Mary said. We'll talk more about that after a bit. Other comments or questions? All right. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 19, 20 through 34. This is a long section. <coughs> then Isaiah the son of Amos said to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, she wags her head behind you the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the Holy One of Israel? By your messenger, you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with my many chariots, I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I have felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. I dried up the sole of my foot. I dried up with the sole of my foot the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring, bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins with their inhabitants shorn of strength and dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass like grass on the housetops blighted before it's grown but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears I will put my hook on your in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back to the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap, and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward, and bear bread fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for the sakes of my servant David. Thank you. message from God regarding this whole thing. God says, you're not doing this Assyria because of your own strength. But because I planned it. I have allowed it. I'm the one that has strewn through the world and all that. And he goes through that whole nice little flowery speech and he tells him that you're not, not going to come into the city. Well, you heard the boast. Of course I am. I'm going to come in. You're not coming into the city. Not only are you not going to come into the city, you're not going to shoot an arrow. You're not going to get close enough to be able to launch an arrow at the city. That's pretty impressive, given the range of a bow. You're not going to have a chance to come before it with a shield, which means you're not going to come up the hill to where the city is. You're not going to touch the mound. You're not even going to be able to put dirt down to build that siege ramp. Not going to happen. Now, this is what I find very interesting. He's doing it for his sake and David's sake. See, Hezekiah is the one who prayed. Why isn't he doing it for Hezekiah's sake? Because he made a promise to David. He made a promise to David. God instituted a covenant with David, and God honors his covenants. At this moment in time, God is going to come and defend the city for David. That ought to scare somebody. That God himself declared, I'm, I'm, just sit back, Israel. He tells them, you're not going to need to grow anything. Two years. The first year, you're going to eat when it grows in the wild. I'm going to make the food grow. You're not going to plant it. Because they're, they're under siege, right? The army's outside the gate. You can't get out there to plant wheat. Don't worry about it. You're going to have food to eat. You're going to go out and harvest and it'll be there. And the second year, you're not going to plant either. You're, you're just going to go out and harvest. I'm going to take care of it. And in the third year, you're going to be able to go out and do what you need to do. And you'll grow your own food and all that again. But I that's how aggravated God is. God, I'm, I'm taking care of this. This is my problem now, not yours. Don't worry about it. I got this. See the power of prayer? Now, Hezekiah didn't know God would do what God would do. Let's face it, we, if we look forward a little bit, the uh, Babylonians are going to come and the people won't listen to God and uh, God's going to let them take them away. But at this moment, Hezekiah has done what God wanted. He tore down the high places. He's brought people back to worshiping him. 
And he does the right thing. He comes to God and says, look, i got this problem. God says, I got it. I'm going to take care of it. I love this answer. The answer from God. Sennacherib did nothing that God had not planned. God did nothing, or um, the, the Democrats, the Republicans, Congress, the President, whatever, whatever group you're mad at right now, did nothing God did not plan. Put that in there. Remember that. This is what happens. God knows he's not taken unaware. Whatever the issue is in your life, maybe it's more personal, maybe it isn't national. Maybe you got somebody at work. God put that person there. He planned it for whatever reason. I don't know. Sometimes I think it is to get our attention. Because, <laughs> like Mary said, we're stupid. All old stupid. And he's knocking on us, and that's why he puts those people in our lives. Or maybe it's because he's trying to teach us a new lesson. He's trying to bring out a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. <laughs> we don't want to be too fruity. <laughs> so he turns that person up a little bit, right? Nothing. He did nothing that God hadn't planned. Sennacherib thought he was all that and then some. See how good I am? And God's like, yeah, no, I, I, I planned it. I knew. So God says, you're not going to siege the city. You're not going to shoot an arrow at it. God himself will defend it. And if you continue reading the passage, which we're not going to do, um, we find out that the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, goes through Sennacherib's camp and kills significant amounts of people, thousands. They just die. Nobody knows why. Because it was the angel of the Lord going through the camp, bringing death, just like in Egypt. When Pharaoh thumbed his nose at God, not once, not twice, but ten times. Ten times Pharaoh thumbed his nose at God, and God said, okay, fine, I'm going to deal with this. And he killed all the firstborn. Well, here we go again. God kills all these thousands of troops of Sennacheribs. And guess what? Sennacherib <coughs> has to run back home because there's rumors of wars going on there and all that. Um, <clears throat> Sennacherib gets back his two sons kill him when he finally does get back they assassinate him and a third son takes the throne uh, he loses out on everything it's actually the beginning of the downfall of Assyria because it's not going to be too much longer and Assyria is wiped out and Babylon is going to become predominant God's going to defend it for his sake in David's, which is surprising. Which is very surprising. Because we think, well, God doesn't do things for our sake, does he? Well, he does. Because he's made promises, and there are all sorts of things that he's promised and said that he's going to do. One of them is he's going to come back, that he's going to come and get us, that he's preparing a place for All that, guess what? It's true. And we can look at this and say... He made a promise to David, and he showed up and kept it. He defended Jerusalem. Syria didn't step foot in it. Right now, the world is taunting God. Read the news. Turn on CNN. Go to your web browser. 
The world is taunting God. There is no God. We can have same-sex marriages. We can have same-sex relations. We can have sex with children. It's all good. It's all okay. It's all natural. Whatever. It's all right. We're taunting God. We're willing to accept all this stuff in our world today. We, sitting in here, are the people on the walls. And we see this vast army out there taunting God. And we're hearing and seeing the threats. And we need to be like Hezekiah's troops and not, not be worried about it. We need to take in what's happening. And then what we need to do is be like Hezekiah and go to God with it. We don't stick our heads in the sand. We need to be aware. We need to know what, how, who. We need to know those things. We're not, we're, we're not oblivious to what the world is. We don't seal up our little church area and say, none but us. No, we're out there. We hear, we see. And it should drive us back to God. That's where we need to be. That's what we need to be doing. Because we need to remember we've been told how all this ends, don't we? We know how this ends. All right, a couple of things to take with us as we go this week. First, pride leads to greater acts of arrogance. Sennacherib was proud. Every battle, a little more proud, a little more proud, until he shows up in Jerusalem and his arrogance is so enormous you could have walked across to America on it. That doesn't mean it's true or that it's a threat to us. Secondly, we can humbly approach God in prayer. That's where we need to go. We look at that arrogance and then we go to God and we humbly submit to Him and listen and pray for what's going on. And we need to remember, God will defend his name and his people. They are not blaspheming us. They're blaspheming God. All this nonsense that keeps going around, coming out, changing, it should bother us. <clears throat> but we don't need to worry about it. We need to pray about it because God will defend his name. He will defend his people. That doesn't mean that some of us may not be affected. Martyrs occur. Sometimes it isn't death. Sometimes it might be loss of job or whatever. But these things happen for God's glory. And that's how we need to perceive them. Let's pray. Father, the world today is no different than it was in Hezekiah's day. Lord, help us to see how to respond in a manner that you can use. Not in our strength and in our will, but in yours. Father, help us to search for that in this trying time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.